Welcome back to another episode of Ecumenical. My name is Peter Holm, and today we're going to talk about the divinity of the church. Before we get started, uh, please remember, smash that like button if you like this content. Make sure to share the video wherever you can. Subscribe to the channel. Tell everyone about it. All this stuff ends up being kind of helpful, hitting the high points, you know, that uh, I kind of globbed onto when I first came into the church and hopefully can help you guys uh, get stronger in your faith, bring other people to the truth, and we'll go from there, all right? So, divinity of the church. Newsflash, like it or not, the church is divine, all right? So, God made it himself with his own two hands. We know this from Scripture and everything that Jesus did at the Last Supper, everything he did on Calvary at the cross, instituting the sacraments and the church and the hierarchy and then appointing and teaching and so on. So this is a Scripture-heavy episode, so buckle up, here we go. All right, so the church herself is incorruptible, and we know this definitively from the Gospels. Specifically, God tells us that if we see brothers in error, who are not going the right direction according to his commandments, we turn them back to the church. That's Matthew 18, 15, 17. We know that the church, she holds on to God's truth, what we need at least for salvation. So that's uh, 1 Timothy three fifteen. So now we can't necessarily know every truth that's in God's mind, but the stuff that we're allowed to see and the stuff that we need to see so we can be saved, we have that. In that same vein, we see that the church also holds God's wisdom. And that's what we need also to remain on course for salvation. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. Now, we know the church is the inerrant and perfect body of Christ. Colossians 1, 18 and 1, 24. He goes into how the body of Christ functions. Now, if we say that the body of Christ is corrupt, that means we're actually arguing now with Paul and Jesus, because the body of Christ cannot be corrupted. But that also means then we have to go really heavy onto that whole grafting into the tree and being cut off and thrown into the fire thing because no errant or messed up part of the body will remain in it to the end. So that's why Romans is, it gets brought up there as well as Matthew where Paul and Jesus talk about what happens to those members of the body that don't actually hold on to the truth. Okay, And so we get compared to the church as a bride, the church as a body, and the church as a tree in the end. So we're using multiple analogies here, but Romans 11.23 talks about how if things actually go wrong, uh, we get thrown out, but we can be grafted in again, all right? Whatever is in the body, in a state of grace, is attached to the divinity of Jesus Christ, attached to his truth and his power and everything else. And so we have to remember that body contains at any given moment only those people in a state of grace, which would then include the poor souls in purgatory, so the church sorrowful, the church triumphant, so that's the angels and the saints in heaven, as well as, again, those members here on earth and the church militant who are in a state of grace, meaning the body itself is inerrant. However, the individuals, we can always deviate. Our sins take us out of uniformity with God, and at worst case, take us out of a state of grace and into a state of sin, which means we're damnable, we're cut off, okay? Now, we know that Christ definitively is God. We have to accept that in order to be Catholic. That's John 20, 28. And therefore, his mystical body then, like I was saying, is divine and attached to him, and he keeps her so that 
he can turn people to her, and we can help with his grace turn people to her for correction and truth. This is why then we can see Paul tell us definitively that the church herself holds no spot, no wrinkle, or blemish. And this is Ephesians 5, 27. Now, this section of Ephesians 5 that Paul's writing about is where he actually talks about the church as the bride of Christ, which is interesting because we've now heard about the church as the body of Christ, the institution of Christ, his expression of power on earth. Well, also we see then Jesus referred to as the bridegroom. So he's the groom, the husband, the church is the wife. They're married. He keeps her perfect and she is obedient, which is what we see in the rest of that section of Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Again, the only way we, you and I, can remain in that body, in the bride of Christ, attached to God, is we have to remain wholly obedient and subservient to Jesus Christ and his commandments. And we have to then also, newsflash, be obedient to those people upon whom he bestows power. So if God says, this person is in charge, this person is a king, this person is a president, this person is your boss, this person is your parent, or this person is the head of your flock as the priest or the bishop, or the Pope, we have an obligation to obey the divine and truthful commandments that may come out of those people's mouths. Now, if they tell us to do something like murder someone, I don't care whether it comes from my boss, my parents, or the Pope, I can't do that, okay? So it's only the stuff that's lawful. Now, when we talk about parents, we know we have to be obedient to them. That's part of the Ten Commandments. It's reiterated in Ephesians 6.1. We have to be obedient to our masters, good and bad, regardless of, you know, I don't care about the character of the man, so to speak. We still have to be obedient because that is what we're obligated to do. And we know this because Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6, 5. And we know because Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Okay, we obey those people even when they are out of alignment. And to be perfectly honest, this is where also Jesus says the same thing to the apostles when talking about the Pharisees. In Matthew uh, 23, 2 and 3, we see him say just that, say, yeah, we know that these Pharisees are hypocrites. We know that they're the bosses of the church kind of thing. But if they're going to tell you something lawful from their authority, from their seat, that basically God is still allowing them to sit on, the apostles, he tells them, you must obey it. All right? So regardless of the man, if someone gives a truthful, a spiritually... Uh, fulfilling and correct commandment, we still have to follow it, even if the, the guy who gives that commandment is a jerk, right? Okay, we don't have the ability to pick and choose. This is not a buffet line. This is the faith. This is union with Jesus Christ. This is not halfway in the body and halfway out. This is all in. This is why we're supposed to cut off the members of our body that don't actually go along with the truth and divinity of Jesus. God establishes a divine church which possesses his divinity and his authority. So we should not be surprised at all when Paul tells us then to obey the prelates in that body. That's Hebrews 13, 17. Acknowledging those who have been set above us. They've actually been given that authority by God to be in charge, which is its own burden and a whole bunch of responsibilities. Um, but that's the nature of things, the way they are, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 is where he talks about the authority of those uh, placed over us. It is these prelates whom scripture tells us are our parents or our fathers in the faith. This is Isaiah 22, 21. And also we see uh, there's a lot of reference to Paul talking about his spiritual fatherhood over Titus and Timothy as examples. 
Now, these people just didn't fall into the role of authority. They were expressly appointed by Jesus Christ with his divine power to lead his church according to his divine commandments and to spread only his divine truth. That's John 15, 16. Okay? Now, with those individuals attached to that divine vocation, which Paul refers to as a divine vocation in Hebrews 3, 1, they have the authority to command. They have the authority to teach. Now, that teaching authority comes, we see in 2 Timothy first. Uh, chapter verse 13, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Titus 1, 9, Romans 6, 17. There's, see a pattern here? All right, we have a, we see commandments. So these prelates have the authority to command. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. They have the power to forgive sins. We see this in John 20, 23 and 2 Corinthians 2, 10. And they have the power, they have the power to bind and loose, okay? And we know about this from Isaiah 22, in terms of the um, the keys to the kingdom, and we also see it again in Matthew sixteen nineteen and Matthew eighteen eighteen. Now, these men are divinely appointed by God Himself through the sacrament of holy orders, which we read about in Acts six verses one through six and First Timothy four fourteen. These others are appointed then by those existing prelates, existing bishops because God gave them the authority to do so. And we see them doing it, like expressing and using that power, acting on it in Acts one twenty, So chapter one, verses 20 to 23, when Peter actually brings the apostles together to replace Judas and say, who's going to take over his bishopric? So who's going to take over his diocese? All right. None of this could happen if God didn't give them the power, but God did give them the power. And then God documented it through his apostles, when Luke wrote the book of Acts, when Paul writes all of his letters, and when the authors of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote it all down, okay? This was passed to us without error, full perfection from God himself saying, this is so important, don't forget it, this is how it just works, okay? Now, when we talk about these priests, these prelates, they are royals in God's kingdom. But when we're looking specifically at these apostles and their successors. The thing about the apostles and what they started and why they got the authority to take the church to the world, they were with Jesus suffering at some level around all of the the uh, events that took place on Calvary. Now, John was the only one who stayed. The other ones ran away, but they were all persecuted and ultimately died terrible deaths as a result of sticking to the faith after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means they're getting the power at the end to sit with Jesus in judgment over humanity. That's Matthew 19, 28. Now, this royal priesthood, as it has been established, will last forever. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and Hebrews 7, 20 to 21, and verse 24. Now, anyone who rejects this divine authority, bestowed upon Christ's apostles, and ultimately then translated through onto the bishops, if they reject those individuals, they're rejecting Jesus, his authority, his role as high priest, and ultimately the divinity, which allows him to transcend time and space to make sure this institution always has authority in his stead until his return. And if they reject him, excuse me, they, they reject the apostles, they reject him, Luke ten sixteen. And now if we're going to sit there and just stop for a minute. So after uh, George Washington was elected president, we didn't need any more presidents. The whole country could just go and do whatever it needed to do. Or did we still need more presidents? Okay, well, in the same vein, we still needed more apostles even after 
Peter had passed on, had been martyred, right? Okay, that's why we still have popes, that's why we still have bishops, etc. Now, Cornelius Elapide talks about this and says, We ought to regard the commands of our religious superiors as if they issued from the mouth of Christ himself. Why does he say that? He says it because ultimately the church is divine, the church continues till Christ's return, and those powers are very much in play at this moment. Now, all that said, you and I were never given the authority to pick and choose which laws we follow and which ones we do not. Again, I will reiterate, Christianity is an all-or-nothing affair. You are either all in in your body, in your blood, in your soul, your mind, your emotions, everything, or you're not in at all. So if you say, well, I'm only going to go half in, then you're not in. I'm only going to go in on Sundays, then you're not in. I'm only going to do these prayers, but I'm going to live a whole life of vice and sin, then you're not in. And all of us fail, right? But then the thing is, is after we fail and we sin and we make all these mistakes on accident, we're not sitting there and just spiting God saying, I'm going to turn on you. No, whenever you fail, immediately we have an obligation to turn back to Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness, correct and amend our lives and get back in, all in or all out. There's nothing in the middle, okay? Obedience means we do everything that God said. Obedience as a wife has to a husband. There's just the obligation. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. It's all about the obedience of a bride to her groom. Obedience of the submissive, the the slave to the master, whatever you want to call it. The whole thing is, is we, us people here, little people, are not in charge. We are not the priests. We are not the bishops. We are not the Pope. We are not God. So we probably should be doing what we're told when those orders are just. Now, in that vein, this is where I'm going to emphasize heaven and the church are not some egalitarian commune. We are seeing a hierarchy where there is a level of authority and a level of power that actually then steps down to the point where we get to us, little people at the bottom. Okay? If we have any hope at all to get into heaven, we shouldn't expect to be anywhere but the bottom row, the janitor in heaven for all intents and purposes. Why? Because when we look at Christ talking about John the Baptist in Matthew eleven twelve, we see Jesus talk about John the Baptist as the greatest in heaven. Okay? Sure, he's behind Mary and Joseph. Okay? But he himself is greater than all of us. <laughs> all right? Even if we make it. That means that in the end, we see a greatness and a power and a structure that's still in place, a hierarchy, right? A triangle. So we see that the head and it goes down and authority spreads out, right? That's just how it works. You have your mid-level lieutenants down to the, you know, the peons, the grunts like us. Well, we have to understand that hierarchy exists in all places. And this life here around us is prepping us for that eternal hierarchy in heaven, which means you and I are going to have bosses. You and I are going to have people and offices here that hold power over us that we have to obey. All right. So we are in a position. We're in a position that is not of the priests. And how do we know? Because Paul literally tells us that not all of us are priests with divine authority. Not all of us are prophets. Not all of us are teachers. In the end, we put it all together. We all have a role to play to complement each other in God's creation, but we're not all the bosses. Most of us, 99% of us are not bosses. We just do what we're told. Now, are you a boss in your own household? Well, moms, you're a boss over your kids. Dads, you're a boss over your whole family. All right. Yeah, I get that. And patriarchs, you have your children and their children, grandchildren, etc. You have all that. Great. But when we think about what our authority looks like, we have to remember 1 Corinthians 
chapter 12, verses 12 to 31, we all have specific roles and we all don't get to be the boss all the time. In the same vein, even those of us who've been confirmed with the Holy Ghost, we are not interpreters of scripture. That is not our job. <laughs> so in the same, so Paul tells us you only have a specific role. It is limited and it's complementary. You're not in charge. Jesus tells us, go to the church for a correction. This means we're not going to be able to interpret scriptures. So everything I'm telling you now is only based on our ability to then spread or share what the church has told us, what the church has interpreted for us, because we know that scripture itself is to be interpreted by the church, to be interpreted by those individuals with holy office, holy orders, who are relying on what God has given them to teach. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, and we see it in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. None of us can actually figure out what scripture means by ourselves, all right? Sorry, Protestants, about your understanding of the church and your understanding of scripture and the Holy Ghost. It's all wrong. It just is what it is. I'm a convert. I found out as well, but it is, all right? You, if you're going to go and read scripture and you're going to tell us, Catholics or anyone else, that you, you're following the Bible, well, then your first and foremost obligation in following adhering to the Bible, which, which was given you by the church, is to then do what the church says and realize what power you do not have, which is you can't interpret scripture, okay? And you're not the bosses. You're not priests. Now, all that taken into account, let's just summarize. The church herself has powers that were left solely to her and her prelates in those divine offices to protect her flock, to protect the truth, and to keep all of us out of as much spiritual harm as possible. Even though individuals in that body may fall into error, just like Judas did, just like Peter did, who denied our Lord, just like many popes who have now followed in Peter's footsteps, just like many bishops who followed, unfortunately, in Judas's footsteps, what never goes wrong, what never falls, is the church. The church herself will last, even if all the prelates fail, and even if you and I all failed, even if every member of the church militant at this moment in time said, you know what, we're out, we're done, we quit, we're all going to hell, it's all terrible. Guess what? Church is still divine. The church is still completely and utterly obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, if for any reason some of this appears not to be true, then you need to ask yourself, would Christ give us a church and tell us to go to her all times as the ultimate authority for correction and truth if she was wrong. Because at that point, if you're going to make that case that the church is fallible, the church is wrong, or the church doesn't possess the church sorrowful and the church triumphant, and ultimately divine truth and perfection of God, the church herself, not the Bible itself, that the Bible contains everything, because we know it doesn't, which is why we see the in the second letter to the Thessalonians, we see Paul actually have to tell them, not only do you follow the words we wrote to you, but you also follow the expressions, what we've told you by word of mouth as well as what we wrote, okay? It's because in the end, the church, what God gave was the traditions and the practices that are beyond scripture itself. This is the end, the last verse of the gospel of John saying Jesus did more than could ever be written in the books, which means he taught more than could ever be written in the books, which means the Bible is limited because John says it would take more books than all the books in the world to write what Jesus did. Yet we put it all into the Bible, which is only what? That thick? Okay, that's not all the books in the world. It's not even close. So we can't say the Bible alone is the teachings of Jesus Christ and the church, the truth of God. It's definitely true. It's definitely inerrant, but it's not all of it. It's not comprehensive. Now in that vein, would God lie? 
if God's not going to lie, and you're going to believe the scriptures that you say and you talk about, you believe, you learn from, and say these are truthful, then you have to accept that Matthew 18, 15 to 17 and Proverbs 19, 20 to 29, we know God is absolutely being truthful and the church absolutely holds the truth of Jesus Christ in it and it maintains its truthfulness and its, and its purity and its divinity, its flawlessness regardless of what we do on the side when we leave her, all right? Prelates or laypersons, doesn't matter. Now, we're going to go even further. Would Jesus Christ have allowed Paul to confidently tell us that God's truth and wisdom lie in the church so we can receive that instruction and wisdom if it weren't true? No. We're in a position, in summary, if we're going to question any of this, then we have to sit there and say, either one, Christ and Paul were telling the truth and the authority of the church could never be relinquished or tarnished in any way. Therefore, the Protestant reformers are abject liars and absolutely misguided. Now, whether or not they knew they were liars, I don't know. It's irrelevant. The whole point is, is they're telling something that's false. And Jesus and Paul are telling the truth and Peter and John and James and so on and so forth and Luke. Or Protestant reformers are totally telling the truth and the Christ they followed isn't the one that told them never to leave the bosom of Holy Mother Church. So both of those sound really bad. All right. So are the Protestants following Jesus Christ and his church? Because they're not part of the church. At least they don't want to be. They don't want to submit themselves to the prelates and to all of the truths and all of the, the wholeness, the fullness of the doctrine and the faith. Now, got it, Catholic prelates who are in error, who are in a state of mortal sin, etc., who are saying things that are terrible and saying, well, this is Catholic, even though it's not, they're in a similar state, all right? It doesn't matter what flavor of apostasy or heresy that someone wants to actually adhere to in the end, it's all bad. So we don't want to be part of that. We just want to say, all right, we're going to go be in the church. It's not my job to judge or to determine whether or not someone is going to end up in hell. It's not that. And I can't tell personally, nor can any Catholic, whether or not someone is in a state of mortal sin or not. All we can tell is whether or not someone is echoing the teachings of our church and what has been given us. Now, can anyone come off of their errors and come back to the truth? Yes, they can. Men are going to fail until the end of time, okay? But thankfully, thankfully for all of us, that church cannot fail. She has a divine head and a divine spirit. Divine members, or at least members who have shared in the divinity, who dwell now in heaven right now, angels and saints. The rest of us here are trying as hard as we can to accept God's grace and to accept God's, accept God's truth and to live within those boundaries to remain within the body of Christ unto our death. And through it, then we are working to do everything we can to ensure that we don't leave, okay? Because there's no other body or institution on the face of this earth that has withstood the failings of men in the same way the Catholic Church has done now for two millennia. No other body could be expected to be as perfect as she has been for two millennia, despite all of the failings of men and, and everything we've done to insult her and the church triumphant and worst of all, God. Thankfully, God's mercy and justice leave it so we have every obligation and every capacity to go back to the church we go take our sacrament of penance, we go get our corrections, we change our ways, we amend our lives, and we do everything we can to be part of the body until we end so that we can be grafted in 
to the church herself. So all those things said, God gave us something amazing in the church, in the Catholic church, and we have an obligation to join him there if we want to go to heaven. It is in our best interests to cling to her with all the strength that we have and make sure that as things continue to get worse, we run to her to make sure we stay away from the errors of the world so that we can be in the truth, in the light, and not go to hell, okay? The church is the only place we have that ability to be with God. That is where the sacraments are. That is where the truth is. That is where God's wisdom is. This is what we have. This is what God gave us. This is how his grace spreads throughout the world. And shouldn't we join him there? I think so. And again, all in or all out. We accept all of it or we reject all of it. There's not a halfway here, okay? Protestants and honestly, any of the heretical sects or anything else that's out there, we accept all or nothing. That is what it is. So are you ready to accept everything that Jesus Christ has given? Everything in his church, everything in the authority he's established. Are you in or you out? All right, hopefully you're all in. I hope this was helpful. Thank you all for your time today. Thank you all for sitting with me to learn a little bit here. And, and uh, let's share this with other people. So make sure to get this link out there, show other people this video, this content, make sure that they can actually learn from it. Uh, check it, criticize, comments, likes, dislikes, whatever. Make sure to put your comments down below. If you like the video, smash the like button. Also then, give any other comments, thoughts, whatever. Yeah, share them, love hearing from you. Thank you all for taking your time with me today, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. In the meantime, may God bless all of us. May the Virgin protect all of us. And as always, St. Joseph, pray for us. All right. See you later.